Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Aggie Hoops Weekly. And if you remember last week's episode, I told you we would never have an episode with two wins again. That was a lie. I lied to you because we did it again. We won two out of three. We're looking at a stretch of four out of our last five. We're ready to talk about an exciting stretch run where we don't exactly know what we're going to be playing for, but we're a pain in the ass for whoever's on our schedule. Let's roll. Welcome back to Aggie Hoops Weekly, the podcast that lovingly looks at AM basketball the way that Lady Gaga looks at Bradley Cooper. <laughs> David, you said it couldn't be done. You said there were no more podcasts this year with two wins, and yet here we sit. Now, this is kind of cheating, I'll admit. Both of these two-win podcasts are coming on a week where we're covering three games, and we've kind of stretched this out to cover a little bit more time. Uh, this is just kind of some of the scheduling quirks and us trying to keep up with life in general. But it's a nice little stretch of Aggie basketball here. What do you think? Well, let me, let me just say this. Um, I'm going to tip my hat to the Reed Rowdies. And I know that's an odd place to start, but these guys have, they haven't stopped. They haven't let up all year. And I know it can't have been an easy year to be the flagship student program for A&M basketball. I was in a good place as a student and where it was really easy to be a member of the Reed Rowdies and it was really easy to sell people on A&M men's basketball for the entirety of my time as a student. And that's not the case this year. And I'm pumped because about 30 or 40 of these kids, Blake, they hopped on a bus and they made the trip to Fayetteville and they were there for that game last night. And I just feel like good for them, like kudos to, to be that invested in the program, that invested in the team, even during a lost season, hop on a bus, go nine, 10 hours to watch a road game. They got, a, they got a win. You know, they were rewarded for the effort. So kudos to them. I'm happy for that crew of kids. Uh, tip of the cap. Yeah, definitely. It's cool to see them, you know, carrying that torch and continuing to support this team, even when the results haven't always been there. So really nice to see those guys get to celebrate a win on the road. It was. It was. And, and what a win it was. It was our first road win at Bud Walton Arena ever. Um, I'm not exactly a sprightly young fellow. I'm almost 10 years out of school. I've got a wife, a child, the mortgage, the whole bit. Uh, I was not alive the last time we beat <laughs> Arkansas on the road. That was March 1st of 1986, and I was not yet born. So that hopefully places in some context the significance of that victory and just, just how rare it has been. Even in the years where we are quite good, we still can't solve that building. So to grab that win, that's pretty significant. Yeah, that's definitely a big win for the Aggies. This is this is a big one going back to 86 and that's always been a tough building to play over the last 30 years you know they they built a nice program there and it's just one of those things that it's a really tough environment to play in and they always seem to get up to play A&M so hats off to to the Aggies it's a really nice win even even in a year when Arkansas is down that's still a great great victory one final note before we launch into the three games we've just had uh, that is the Ken Palm best home court advantage in the nation. Wow. So just in terms of your home versus road splits, how much better you are as a home team, Bud Walton Arena is the best home court advantage in the nation. 
and we just won a basketball game there. So that's, I don't care how good or bad Arkansas is, that's an accomplishment. Definitely it is. So let's launch into the to the week that was, shall we? Well, we're going to start with the bad stuff because we did start with a loss at South Carolina. This is a South Carolina squad that desperately needs every game they can they can grab. Uh, their non-conference results were abysmal, but they've been pretty good in the SEC. I think they're up to nine and four, maybe ten and four by this point. Uh, but they need every win they can to get into the NCAA tournament. So they they desperately needed this game. Uh, we didn't, which made it all the more surprising when we jumped out to a 13-point lead in the first half. We really came out of the blocks well on the road for what has to feel like the fifth or sixth time running where we've played well on the road. And we had a 42-35 halftime advantage, and I was feeling pretty good. I felt like this was a game we we were going to potentially come away with. And then uh, South Carolina just buried us with an avalanche of threes in the second half, uh, which culminated in a new school record for made threes. A 49-point half, they ended up winning the game 84-77. to to me, this was just one of those days we ran into a buzzsaw. If, if you are playing on the road and the team you're playing sets a school record for made threes at home, you're going to have a bad time. You're not going to win that basketball game. And that was the story of this one is that they just shot us out of the gym. We followed that up with a home game against Alabama, and we had a truly, truly horrible first half. Like We had 11 points with seven minutes remaining in the first half, and had it not been for some lucky fouls and some late half free throw shooting, we could have had a first half in the teens. And it looked like another loss was coming. There was really nothing to cling to. 30-24 to 24 halftime deficit, one of those six-point halftime deficits where you're just really, really grateful it's not a dozen or more. And they, uh, the, the Alabama continued to maintain that lead, and they kind of pushed it to 12 early in the second half. And then we closed the show, Blake, in the last 12 minutes of that game against Alabama. We outscored them 33-12, to 12. quite possibly the best and most complete extended stretch of basketball we've seen all year. And much like the game against South Carolina, Bama needed that game. So that's another game where Bama really needed it. We're just kind of playing out the string. We don't have any legitimate NCAA aspirations at this point, so... Really, really pumped that we played that well at home against the team that really needed it. Finally, we'll talk about the game we just we just riffed on for a little bit, the win at Arkansas. So the first half here wasn't really much to talk about, kind of an ebb and flow. Uh, we did push the lead up and near 10 in the first half, but Arkansas closed the gap, and it was only a 1.38-37 A&M lead at halftime. And the game kind of stayed close midway late in the second half, and then we had an 11-2 run to kind of push the game out of reach. Arkansas fouled a lot. They fouled too much. You know how teams tend to do that? They just kind of kept fouling and fouling. But we kept hitting our free throws. We were 10 for 14 from the line in the last 90 seconds. And, you know, that's good enough. That, that'll close you a basketball game. So 87-80, first win at Bud Walton Arena in uh, in 30 years. And yet another 2-1 podcast. What do you make of that? Man, this is this is fun. I think we could get used to this, right? We could. It kind of makes me want to do nothing but three game episodes just on the off chance that we get <laughs> multiple victories again. Looking at South Carolina, the way that A&M came out of the gates was was a great sign yet again, uh, just a sign that this team hasn't given up. As you talked about, South Carolina shot the lights out. You expect Chris Silva to be what he is. Chris Silva is a phenomenal player. He went for 22 points against the Ags and was great. But A.J. Lawson was phenomenal. That guy was 6 or 7 from beyond the arc and had 23 points. So I don't think you always expect A.J. Lawson to have that kind of night. And, you know, it's one of those things that you just you have those nights where the other team gets hot and they're at home, they're in their gym, they need that win. So it's it's the way it goes sometimes. I wasn't I wasn't as disappointed in that loss. I felt like the Aggies actually represented themselves pretty well on the road. Alabama, I know we talked about this last week. I, I love Avery Johnson. I, I'm a Spurs fan. You know, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for Avery Johnson, but 
the way he has this Alabama team running is just, it puzzles me. They rely solely on their athleticism. They don't look organized at all. And, you know, I, I know you talked about A&M had a bad showing in that first half against Alabama, but Alabama wasn't much better in that first half either. That was what was really stunning is they could have you know, put the game away at halftime and, and we were very clearly in it. So I love the way that the Aggies fought down the stretch and, and took over the game and, you know, really made an, a nice showing and dare I say, looked like a, a really disciplined, focused basketball team. I was, I was really impressed with the way that the team executed down the stretch. And then that went at, at Arkansas. I know we already riffed on it for a while, but you know, I, I think that that's just a really cool, really cool thing for this group of guys to pick up that win. Arkansas isn't the team that they have been in in prior years. I, I feel kind of the same way about Mike Anderson as I do about Johnny Jones. You know, when he's on the other bench, you, you almost feel like you have a tactical advantage built in. Hmm. And so I think that there was a little bit of that at play here, but you know, still, I think it's a a great win for the Aggies. It is. And, you know, we're very quietly becoming a solid road team. We've got a three and four record in conference. But if you look at even with those four losses, in all four cases, we took a sizable lead on the road in all four games that we lost. Without having it in front of me, I would venture to guess it might even have been a double digit lead on the road in all four games that we've lost. Because I know we had that 10-0 lead at Rupp and we've had a similar first half explosion in pretty much every road game we've played. I mean, three and four with some good efforts on the road. That's I'm really impressed by that because usually if you're if you're a bottom feeder conference team, you go on the road and get waxed, and that's just not what we do. Yeah, uh, you look at where we've had our good road games as well. Going into Rupp, going to Florida, going to South Carolina, and I know that South Carolina doesn't seem like a great juggernaut, but they still have they still have some some pretty solid players on that team. Frank Martin has taken it's taken a little while to get this group of guys to come together, but once they've hit conference play, they've done really well. You know, this South Carolina team reminds me kind of of that 0506 Syracuse team that AM actually knocked out of the NCAA tournament, in that, you know, they they started off slow in non-conference play, but they found their legs down the stretch of, of conference play and made a nice run in, into the NCAA tournament. And I think you're seeing South Carolina do the exact same thing here. Now, we talked about this last week. Does that mean they are a bit of a paper tiger? I think so. I don't know that they'll make a deep run in the in the tournament, but I do think they are a formidable opponent right now. So I, I think that it, there's an interesting thing here in that game, you felt like AM was playing really well. They were playing really solid man-to-man defense, and this is something we've seen recently. AM's actually been playing better defensively, and then they switched out of man into a zone. What was the reasoning behind that? So that's a good that's a good question. And I think the answer connects to one of your recent rants about Kennedy, whenever there was a, a timeout that we didn't like, where it just felt like the plan had to be enacted and the plan couldn't be deviated from. And I feel like that's what happened here because in a game where the man-to-man defense was working pretty well and it was kind of keeping South Carolina's guards at bay, we went to a rotation that can't really support man-to-man and then we played zone and South Carolina shot us to death and we never really adjusted to that. It was like we had a plan etched in stone of when this rotation comes in, we're playing zone and we're giving this group five minutes come hell or high water and that was that. 
to make it matters worse, it happened again in the second half. We're going to put that same crew in. They're going to play zone again. And South Carolina was just ripping this zone apart. Um, and so it, it, to me, that's that's the explanation that, that I land on. And the one that frustrates me is that it felt like the thing we've been frustrated by in the past, which is the Billy Kennedy plan. This is the plan. The plan shall not be deviated from, and so it shall ever be. And th- that's just what it felt like to me, which it's frustrating to watch that and to, to know that it doesn't really have to be that way and, and to see it not work. It's, it's a rough look. Yeah, I agree. This was definitely one of those times where you just looked at the situation and said, why? Why Why do you keep banging your head against the wall? Clearly, they're not going to miss. Um, you know, the, the old adage is there's – you know, there's one way to get a team out of a, out of a zone, and that's to shoot them out of it. And <laughs> they shot us out of the zone, and we never left the zone. I, I don't understand what was going on in that situation. So, yeah, it was like if you're playing Cowboys and Indians with your friends, and it's like I shot you, and then the kid just like doesn't die, and he just like runs at you anyway. It's like, well, that's not fair. You've been shot. That's how it was, right? Like <laughs> South Carolina shot us. They were like, this is the part where you fall down and you come back out in a man-to-man defense. And we were just like, no, we don't play by those rules. We're just going to stay in the zone. We're just, we're, we, you know, we reject your reality and create our own. Um, so yeah, it was frustrating. And I wrote about this, and I included the line that it felt like the game, it felt like a game we could have and perhaps should have won. It, you know, it didn't have to break that way. And you just wonder. You know, what's the harm? I know you don't want to make a habit out of this, but what's the harm, particularly in a in what had become a lost season? What's the harm in pushing the minutes just a little bit? Just a little bit. We're not saying, you know, run a six-man rotation for the entirety of a road game, but just push the rotation a little and just deviate from your plan a little. I don't know. It's It felt like a game we could have won, and, you know, in a not-too-different alternate universe, we were sitting on a five-game winning streak. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And at the heart of that win streak has been a, a couple of guys who have just really stepped up and played incredibly well. And by that, I am referring to Savion Flagg and Chuck Mitchell. Yeah, and I'm going to start with Flagg real quick, and I'll let you take the first lead on Mitchell. So for Flagg, I feel like you and I, we spoke a lot in the preseason about the progress we needed from him if the team was to be taken seriously. Uh, points that we made that I felt gained more importance when Gilder uh, was lost for the year. And if you follow, his ebb and flows tend to follow the team's ebb and flows. When he was good for a stretch in December, we were good. When he kind of wasn't there for large stretches of January and early parts of February, that's where we capitulated and lost 8 out of 10. Uh, He's back now. He's averaging, and I've got the numbers here, 21.3 points and 8.3 rebounds in his last three games with 60-50-80 shooting splits. I mean, that's legitimately good, like, all SEC honorable mention level wing play. That's really good wing play. And he's been that now for three straight games. Uh, he was the best guy on the floor in both wins this week. I would say, Blake, this is maybe our best chance to have an SEC player of the week nod. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get one this year, but this is about as good a shot as any because he has been that good this week. He was awesome. He really has. He's been quite outstanding this year. It's really cool to see the evolution in his game. And I think that one of the things that really helps him is having – a guy out there in the form of Chuck Mitchell who who can create, who can knock down shots and and draw some of that attention away from Savion. So it frees Savion up to do some things. But Savion has really played well both inside and out. I think of, you know, it it's interesting you when you're listening to some of these broadcasts and some of these announcers who don't cover AM on a consistent basis. You know, they look at Savion's size and they almost treat him like a power forward or like a stretch four. And and 
I think you and I both scratch our heads when we hear some of these things that those guys say. But really, mm-hmm. I mean, they're just looking at at base metrics and saying, oh, well, you know, based on his size, he's he plays a four, right? And and it's like, well, yes, only out of necessity. But he's done some really nice things inside. I think he's played really well. His rebounding is is has been outstanding this year. The way he's crashing the glass, he's doing everything we need him to do. And I, I, I can't congratulate him enough on everything he's done to improve his game this year because he he's really elevated himself to the next level. And even though he's a slightly undersized four, he's reba- his, his rebounding numbers are you know, legitimately power forward good. So he's banging in there, and he's not slowing down. I mean, I'm, even if he doesn't have the typical power forward's body size, I mean, he's, he's pulling down his fair share of rebounds. Yeah, he really is. And and going back to Chuck Mitchell, this guy has been outstanding this year. I have been thoroughly impressed with everything we've seen out of him. And this three-game stretch in this past week just c- continues to solidify what we've seen from him. He's a solid 18 points a game. Yes, his, his season average right now is 13.4, but that factors in the beginning of the season when he's still trying to find his footing and get, get into a rhythm figure out everything with with a new set of teammates and all of that. But now, once he's gotten into kind of the heart of conference play, he scored at least 18 points in six of his last seven games. The guy's done everything we can ask him to do. He's great with the ball. He doesn't turn it over. He, he shoots really well. I've been really impressed with what we've seen from him, and I'm really excited about seeing him on the floor for the Aggies in, in the future as well. I do wish I had scoring per game conference games only because i feel like with that filter he's certainly a top 10 sec scorer in conference play but you're right his slow start is just that's going to drag his numbers down and he's not going to make any sort of impact on any sort of year-long statistical leaderboard but yeah i mean in, in, in conference play he's been that good he's been very very good now let's do i guess we almost could have it like a sponsored segment the weekly starks discussion because whatever this guy does you know there's many things you can say about him but he is not boring he is basically made for the basketball podcast spectrum because he's fascinating, he's polarizing, and he had another really, really, really interesting three games. He had, uh, I would I mean, I don't know how to put this, but if you look at the box score, you look at the box score and you're just like, why is this guy seeing the floor? He shouldn't even be out there. But the last, uh, I would say, five to six possessions against Arkansas before the game turned into a foul fest he ran the show. He got to the basket and either finished or found someone for a wide open three. And in big moments, he can still carry the day, even if he gives you 30 minutes of nonsense leading up to that. I don't know, Blake. That feels like a relatively recent development to me. Normally, a bad start would just sink his afternoon. But I would say, what, maybe three or four times in a row now, we've seen Jekyll and Hyde both show up on the same day, which I don't know. I think at times we can work with that. Yeah, I think so. So I'll take a step back here. And say, you know, we've seen a change in his usage from the standpoint that Billy Kennedy has moved to bringing Starks off the bench. This is reminiscent of last year to me when you had Dwayne Wilson as the starting point guard and Starks came in as a change of pace, right? Almost like your change of pace running back. Yep. I think this role suits TJ really well. Yes, you're still going to have those Jekyll and Hyde moments. You're still going to have games where he has seven crazy turnovers and you're just scratching your head looking around like what is going on 
you'll have games where he's got two turnovers, but he's one for six from the free throw line. I mean, it's just bizarre. I don't understand how how he can be so polarizing just from one moment to the next. But I do think that his style of play is a good fit for a six-man role, especially as that, that second point guard coming off the bench and, and maybe exploiting some guys who aren't on the same caliber as as a, your typical starting lineup. You know, we didn't know it at the time, but he was perfectly cast in that role last year. I think that's a really good point that you made. Uh, now that we've learned a little more about his personality and the way he operates, being the freshman on a senior-laden team and being asked to come in and give scoring in small bursts, who's better at that, right? Like, it's it's you couldn't have drawn up a better role for this guy. So perhaps that's why he was so explosive last year is maybe he had just landed in what was a situation perfectly suited for his talents. And as is often the case with a four-year college career, that's not always going to be the case. Your situation will evolve, and you need to evolve with it. I think what's happening here is he is belatedly doing that, but I think it took some time, and I think it took Kennedy kind of nudging him that direction via the six-man role. So with that being said, I think it's time for our other weekly segment, the Blake's Big Man Appreciation. Uh, this week it goes to Josh <laughs> Nebo. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, Josh had, had been out with an injury for a couple of games. He came back, didn't look especially effective for two or three games. But in the last couple games, he has looked phenomenal. He's looked like the Josh Nebo we all have, have grown to, to know and love. It's really great to see him. He's such a game changer inside. He's his offensive game continues to evolve, but his defense is is phenomenal. I mean, he's such a great rim protector and does a really nice job of of making other teams account for him and where he's at. And you know, they, they don't attack the rim the same way when he's in the game. Yeah, uh, his block numbers haven't been that good lately, and I'm starting to wonder if people are just getting tired of challenging him. <laughs> it might be one of those things where uh, these might become blocks that don't show up on the stat sheet where people are either changing their shots or just changing their offense when he's on the floor. Um, it sounds like, you know, that's a big statement, but shoot, if we have two-thirds, almost three-fourths, or yeah, three-fourths of a season of data where he was just, you know, when he got minutes, he was putting three or four blocks up a game regularly i mean with very very few exceptions so yeah it's nice to have him back and i think what's going to be interesting is you know mecca wudu was kind of unleashed in nebo's absence so watching nebo come back at full strength i'm hoping these guys can, can maybe both hit their powers at the same time which i don't know blake it you know you're the big man specialist but i feel like that's rarely happened this year we rarely get both of them on, on the same day yeah you're right we we don't see a lot of that but i do think it is an interesting thing that that we're starting to see evolve, uh, especially in the last couple games where Mekawulu was great and Nebo was great. These guys, you know, Mekawulu actually stepped up a little bit more in the stat sheet defensively against Arkansas. He was the one with three blocks. Nebo had, I only had one, but Nebo had 14 points. Both guys, though, looked like they were, you know, really engaged and really contributing to, to the overall game plan and the overall execution. So it's really good to see. And I think coming down the stretch, you could see some nice development from both guys. So I, with that being said, let's look at long-term. What does this all mean? I know that within the context of this year, you know, we, we always kind of look in scope of the short term and what does it mean for this year? And we've talked about this year. We know that there's really not an expectation of postseason play, we're looking towards the future. So 
what we've seen in the last week or even, let's say, the last two to three weeks, what are you seeing and what does this mean in context of a longer-term play? So I think there's two angles we can hit this from. I'm going to take the player angle and I'll let you take first first crack at the uh, the man at the top. Sure. Because there's there are I think there really are two ways to approach this question. So in terms of the roster construction, in terms of the guys that we have, I'm going to take us back to February 7th, whenever we had a 1-8 SEC record, Billy Kennedy's worst midseason conference record in his entire career. Uh, we're getting propped up in the table by only lowly 0-9 Vanderbilt at that point. It was just about as bad of a situation as you can imagine. And I would pose to you, Blake, that if you were to look across the 32 D1 conferences, you would see, I would guess, 50 teams with either one win or zero conference wins as of February 7th. That's just just me guessing without knowing too much about the situation. And I would say of those 50, probably almost all of them just continued to fall apart. And I'm guessing they're all looking at records with maybe one, maybe two conference wins. I have to imagine that there aren't too many that did what we did, which is to just refuse to go down like that, to win four out of their five. I mean, you asked the question four weeks ago, I think, by this point, uh, you kind of wonder what the team was made of in the immediate aftermath of the loss at home against Missouri, which was one of the worst things any of us had ever seen. And since then, we're 5-5. Five and five. And what's more than that, we're 5-5 five and five with 10 legitimately good efforts. Since that day, we have not been blown off the court. We have not quit. We've played well. We've played hard. You don't always see that in college basketball as teams come down the stretch. So I'm pumped about what we've got. We've got guys that give a shit. We've got guys that are developing. And to tee you up for your piece of the question – this is becoming a more and more attractive job, I would suggest, if there is going to be a change at the top, because we're really not losing that much. We have, a, I would say, an above-average STC class coming in, and there's a lot more to like about the current setup than you would have thought even three weeks ago. So, you know, this leads me into your portion, which is, what do you see on the bench? What do you see at the head coach position? How do you feel versus the way you felt on February 7th? My overall evaluation of Billy Kennedy has not changed as far as how I would grade him from a coaching perspective. But I'm not the one, and probably none of our listeners are the ones who are ultimately responsible for making this decision. If Scott Woodward is a listener, this is awesome. I, I Let us know. Uh, hit <laughs> us up on Twitter. Um, but I, I, don't, I, I don't think that... He's considering our input on this matter. Um, however, I do think this stretch of games opens a door. And that door leads to Billy Kennedy returning for next year. We've talked about it already. He has a, a pretty nice little class coming in next year. Four really solid guys coming in next year. And there's rumors that there might be another one joining this group. Um, so... I think I think there's you look at that you look at what you've seen from the group of guys that are returning guys like Mitchell, Flag, Starks, uh Nebo, you're starting to see some really nice pieces coming together. Okay? If Scott Woodward takes a look at that and says, "Hey, this was a down year. We knew it was a down year." and he buys the Kennedy rationale, that this down year was somewhat unexpected because we didn't know that we were going to be losing Tyler Davis. We didn't know that we were going to be losing DJ Hogue. We didn't know that Admon Gilder was going to have the injury that he had. 
there's multiple things coming into play here where I could I could feasibly see Billy Kennedy keeping his job. His termination is not the foregone conclusion we thought it was. Now, is that something we're rooting for or rooting against? Eh, that's that's a different matter. I know a lot of people are probably actively rooting against that. I myself, I cannot actively root for A&M to lose. And at, that po- at this point, the only way to guarantee that he doesn't return is for A&M to lose. I, I, bit of a dilemma. Yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma. Do I think that Billy Kennedy is, is the guy who's going to take this program to the level that we want it to be at, where it's contending for national championships on an annual basis, where we're annually in the Sweet 16 or Elite Eight? No, I don't. I don't think he's that guy. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I think Billy Kennedy is a very nice guy. I think he's a he's a mediocre basketball coach. I think he's actually a pretty decent recruiter. Um, I just I don't think that strategically he 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 pushes the right buttons that he pulls the right levers to get his team in the best position when it counts. But all those things being said, I'm not actively rooting for this guy to lose his job. He's he's a human being and he's a good human being at that. I can't wish ill upon him in that way and I I want I want to see the Aggies do well I want to see the Aggies win so it's a difficult thing but I I want to get your take on that as well okay so I've I've got a segue for you and this is why we get paid the big bucks are you ready you get paid no okay (laughs) All, all all you've got to do is look at our next opponent the LSU Tigers they had an established coach who wasn't bad in the four years preceding his bottom out year, LSU was nine and nine, nine and nine, eleven and seven, eleven and seven in SEC play. Does that sound like anyone you know? Because it sounds like someone I know. Yes, <laughs> that, yes. That, we've got very one familiar. of those. Yeah, we've got one of those. And LSU did bottom out last year. Now we're not bottoming out to our credit, and I think that's that that does matter, right? This is not going to be a, a two and sixteen SEC year for us because that that's what LSU was in two thousand seventeen. They were two and sixteen. We're not going to be that, but this is also pretty clearly a year that's not up to par with the recent standard that has been set. And what did LSU do? They canned him. They went and got Will Wade, and now they are the presumptive favorites, favorites for the SEC title. If you saw the crowd at Pete uh, Maravich Assembly Center over the weekend when when Tennessee came to town, that was everything we want Reed Arena to be, and it's it, it's what Reed Arena has been in 2018 and 2016. To be fair. But it was packed, packed to the gills, insane reaction when LSU pulls off the victory in overtime. And that's the kind of thing you can get if you're willing to part with someone that is good but not great. I'm not saying Johnny Jones is even good. He's certainly not great. But you heard me list off the SEC records, right? I mean, he was at or above 500 for four years and only one bad year, and then they canned him. There were There's an argument to be made that that's not fair, right, just in terms of you know, four above average or at least average years, one bad year getting rid of someone, you can make the argument like, oh, I don't know, let the guy give him a chance to turn it around. But they assessed, I feel correctly, that he was not going to get them to the level they wanted to go. They made a change and it's paying off in spades. And I feel like that is the direction we need to take this. I think you can look at this turnaround strictly in the context of how well we could do next year 
if we're willing to part with this guy and and make a young attractive hire and just and try to take this thing in a different direction. So that that that's my mini rant is look no further than our next opponent to see what we could be next year. I agree. And I think the other really tantalizing thing is Scott Woodward has shown the ability to absolutely crush a coaching search. He has. Oh man, absolutely. The the possibility of, of Scott Woodward hiring a basketball coach is one of those things that really gets you excited when you start thinking about the possibilities. No, I, I don't think that that's a guarantee of success, but I do think that it's it's a pretty good indicator that he's going to go and find the right guy to, to help take this program to the next level. So if it comes to that situation, I think that we're in for a really exciting time. I just, the thing I would say is for those who are counting on that, we're not there yet. It is not the foregone conclusion we once believed it to be. And that I will agree with. If we were sitting at one and thirteen in SEC play, we would all be lining up. You know, I would already start posting coaching search articles, right? Because there would just be no doubt at all. But five and nine does open the door, and with four games left, I mean, it has to be said there is a situation from here on out. There's, it is possible that we keep them. I don't know exactly where that line sits. You and I might differ on where it sits, but you know, it, it's a question worth asking. Let's say we finish. Let's say we win three out of these last four and we finish eight and ten with a decent run in the SEC tournament and maybe an NIT berth. You know, what does that do for you? What about one and three where we don't get any postseason play at all, but we at least turned it around some, right? What you know, obviously there's the extremes on both ends. What if we go four and oh and like get to the bubble? What if we go oh and four and it all falls apart? There's there's a myriad of possibilities still. And the ten different people would probably give you ten different opinions on exactly what the situation needs to look like in order to keep this guy around. But your original point, I think, is valid and is probably the most important point to take away from this, which is that the last five games have made it possible. They've made it possible. Now we see how the last four games play out. And and I, I really don't know where, where to go from there. I think we just uh, – I think things will be a lot more clear the next time we talk, and they'll be even more clear the time after that. You know, it's just one of those things that the time will reveal uh, the path that we will take. How about that? <laughs> So anyway, Blake, with, with that in mind, we, you know, we do have four games left, uh, the next two of which are really diametrically opposite in that we go on the road to play the team that might win the conference. We follow that up with a home game against Owen Troll Vanderbilt, who looks poised to not win a single SEC game this year. Where do you land on our upcoming week of games? Yeah, I think that this is one of those that should definitely be one in one week, especially with Vanderbilt being senior night at home. We, we definitely need to pick up a win there. If not, then you start going more to that foregone conclusion direction in in the conversation we were just having. But yeah, that that game against LSU at Pete Maravich, you're just wanting the team to keep it close. But LSU is a phenomenal team this year. Really impressed with what we saw from them this weekend against Tennessee. These guys are good, and I, I don't see AM have much of a chance uh, beating them at home. But you know, crazier things have happened. Uh, but I will encourage everyone, if you're around the College Station area, get to Reed Arena on Saturday, 5 o'clock tip, senior night. We'd like to show some love to to the guys who are who are leaving the program. It's possible that this could be Admon Gilder's last home game, even though he won't be playing. Uh, this will be the last game for Christian Mekawulu. We want to we want to show him some appreciation for what he's done for the program, and then I believe Frank Byers also is an outgoing senior this year as well. So, and Chris Collins, of course, Collins, has, yeah, has been yeah. a, a great 
role player for this team and has done some really nice things and has stepped in when when he was desperately needed and, and risen to the occasion. So, you know, these there's some guys here that we, we, we want to make sure that we know that we appreciate them and the things that they brought to the program. So if you're around College Station, make sure you get to read for a 5 o'clock tip against Vandy on Saturday night. Well put. I can't think of a better way to close it. Hopefully we're talking about a 2-0 week. Perhaps a 1-1 week is more likely, but I'm looking forward to another discussion. And again, just one one final note. You know, Kudos to the guys for not letting this thing go down in flames. It's To win 4 out of 5 in that scenario, it's impressive, and I think, I think it's something to be proud of. Yep. Right now I think you're just fighting to, to play spoiler for a couple of these other teams. So my hat's off to, the, to this group of guys for continuing to fight and going out there and giving their effort. Talk to you next week. 